Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, artist and pulp art historian David Saunders examines the career of Nick Egenhofer, Dean of Western Illustrators. The talk was recorded on Thursday, August 4, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you for your interest in Nick Egenhofer. You know, he drew thousands of pen and ink story illustrations for Western pulps from 1920 to 1955. And throughout it all, he was uh, one of the true pillars of pulp society. Nicholas Egenhofer was born uh, December 5th, 1897, in Gauting, Germany. The town is uh, 10 miles southwest of Munich, which is the capital city of Bavaria in southern Germany. Gauting is a farming community surrounded by forests and the foothills of the German Alps. The town was a popular place for upper-class families of Munich to have a second home in the country, and there was a fast and convenient uh, train service to Munich. The only church in Gauting uh, is the Catholic Church, St. Benedict. And that's the namesake of the artist's father, Benedict Egenhofer, who was born in Gauting. And his mother, Margaret Stuckel, uh, was also born there. They married in 1896, and they had four children. Nick was the oldest one. Then there was Margaret, Benedict Jr., and Joseph. Here's the family in 1904. The two kids are Nick and his little sister, Margaret. You can see the four grandparents there, and Nick's mother and father. And the guy on the uh, end towards me is uh, the mother's uh, only brother, Hans. They're sitting outside of the uh, Stuckel family home which was a a bakery in the center of town across from the church, and the family lived upstairs. Um, So that's the Stuckel family. The Egenhofer family owned a lot of land and some uh, forest and some farming land, but they also owned the town's only mill, which was um, had uh, right next to the river that ran through the center of town, the Worm River, and... uh, It ran the uh, grain mill, but it also had a second water wheel to run the uh, lumber mill. And um, the family lived on the second floor in this house. And uh, Nick's father was in charge of the uh, stable for the horses that were needed uh, for this business. And uh, they, through this mill, they supplied lumber, flour, and uh, hops for the brewery in um, Munich. So in those days, uh, just for the younger people in the audience, uh, horses uh, supplied most of the power for everything in farming, you know, plowing, planting, and harvesting. And the horses uh, brought the hops from the field and put it in storage barns, and horses pulled the massive wagons that would bring the hops to the brewery in um, Munich. And giant horses pulled giant wagons and barrels of <laughs> beer to all the uh, group, to local taverns. And so the mechanics of harnessing and handling horses was, was the Teamsters' tradecraft, 
And that was um, Nick's father's job. When Nick uh, was a kid, uh, in the summer times, he would work at the stable. Um, but, you know, he enjoyed being there and watching his father work all the time. And um, he had always been fascinated with the horses, according to him, and with the wagons and machinery. And, you know, all, every, it was all handmade uh, uh, yokes and things. And <laughs> the equipment that they used is uh, just handcrafted wood, wood designs. One day, um, the grandfather hired a helper to work there who uh, had art training and uh, was able to draw everything. And when Nick found that out, according to him, quote, um, when I found out he could draw, I pestered the poor fellow to show me how. He must have liked children, for he was always good-natured about drawing for me. I believe this experience was the beginning of my interest in art. I was soon sketching one thing or another, mostly horses and soldiers. Nick made detailed drawings of everything in the livery stable so he could better understand the art of um, teamstering. <laughs> this uh, diagrammatic approach to art is something very typical of German art, um, which is, always has a, uh, all throughout German history, has a, a high value put on uh, documentation that was accurate. His childhood interest in horses was also an extension of a pop culture fascination at that time with the American Wild West. Nick later recalled, quote, when I was a kid in Bavaria, this Buffalo Bill thing was going very strong. All the kids in Germany then played Der Trapper und Der Indian, Indianer, as we called it. Trappers and Indians. And this is Nick um, dressed up in his little outfit as a trapper. When Nick's parents discovered that he had an interest in drawing, uh, they wanted to send him to the Munich Academy of Fine Arts. And since there was an easy train uh, travel between uh, Gauting and Munich, it was feasible. But the cost of the tuition was just too much for their family. So this was a big disappointment to Nick. And uh, he would uh, talk about it later on. And, um, but even if he had gone there, it would have been really unusual because practically all the students there were from the upper-class families. Oh, I went too far. According to uh, Nick, he said, quote, there had never been any artists in my family, none that I know about, maybe a few horse thieves, but what family doesn't have them? And then one cold winter night in March of 1909, the Egenhofer family mill caught fire and burned down, and the family was lucky to escape with their lives. But they were uh, financially ruined, and so it was like a, a huge, huge uh, milestone kind of thing in their life because then they were um, uh, no longer even able to pretend to be prosperous or something. Uh, and so they, they were genuinely um, dead broke. So they, were, they had to sell all the property that they had, uh, the reigning land and stuff, and uh, they moved to an apartment um, near one of the ancient city gates in Munich. And this... Um, where the father found work as a livery stable working. Um, so Nick was only 13 years old when this happened, and uh, so the family had to send him to a trade school, uh, and they were teaching him how to be an office clerk 
And he really resented it um, because his life was so much better before the big fire, you know. In Germany, uh, teenage boys um, were required to pre-register for military service when they turned 16. In Nick's case, when this momentous birthday approached, the general staff of the German army had amassed the largest army in the world, and they were rattling their sabers with the approach of the Great War. The Egenhofer family decided to spare their son from military conscription. So they sent him away from Germany before it was too late. On December 2nd, 1913, three days before his 16th birthday, Nicholas Egenhofer boarded the steamship Kaiser Wilhelm II and left Germany en route to America. Okay. Uh, so uh, on this uh, manifest for the ship, you, uh, you, it's like the third line from the bottom. Um, I had put some uh, uh, circles and things that were on it, so it's probably it's a compatibility issue, but it's not there. Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, like line uh, six and seven, the from the very towards the bottom. That's Nick and his, uh, at the last minute, his brother, uh, his cousin, George, uh, decided, who was also turning 16, that he was going to go with him. So the two of them left. And uh, neither one could speak English at all. And uh, they took the voyage. It took seven days. And uh, this is a part of the manifest that shows where they're going to be going and how much money they have and where they came from. And uh, it says on it that, that the grandfather paid for their passage and uh, the grandfather gave each kid $25 with which to start their life in the new world. And uh, they both listed their occupation as clerk. So that little dot there is Union City, New Jersey. And that's where um, his father's brother, Peter Egenhofer, lived. He worked as a helper in a butcher shop right here in uh, this, that picture there. And uh, he lived in an apartment above the shop with his wife and family. So both of these little nephews uh, moved into the cramped apartment. And Nick later described his early life in New Jersey as long hours of hard work at odd jobs. In his free time, he visited the Hudson Theater Motion Picture House to watch movies. And his favorites were the westerns. He sat in the front row and watched cattle stampedes and Indian attacks and blazing gun battles with stars like Bronco Billy, William S. Hart, and Tom Mix. Of course, in 1914, these were silent films. And the artist fondly recalled, quote, My first English lessons were to decipher the dialogue cards that were flashed on the screen, unquote. After living for six months, with his Uncle Peter in New Jersey, news came from the old world that the situation had worsened. This headline translates as Germany in danger of war. Nick's father and mother and younger siblings all packed up and left Germany to come to America. Only a few days after their arrival, Germany declared war, after which there was an embargo on German shipping while America decided whether to join the war or not. The Egenhofer family moved into an apartment at 126 Main Street in Union City. 
Nick left his uncle's apartment and moved in with his own family. Although they were safely away from the battlefields, they found themselves in a strange country where the population was seriously prejudiced against Germans. Most American business owners fired any employees with German-sounding names at that time. So the only jobs available to them were low-paid manual labor. Many landlords evicted German families because their neighbors did not want to live in the same buildings with them. This created a ghetto, and the uh, German-Americans gathered together in a segregated community in Union City, which was 80% German. Thanks to his expertise as a teamster, Nick's father was hired as a wagon driver for the Hudson Ice Company. The Teamsters drove heavy-duty ice wagons, as well as home delivery carts. Nick's little sister, Margaret, was only 14 years old, but she got a job as a silk girl at the Schwarzen Huber and Company Embroidery Mill in Union City, where she worked 10-hour days with 700 other young women factory workers. One of her co-workers was Louise Margaret Strube, who would eventually become Mrs. Nicholas Egenhofer. Here is Nick's uh, drawing of Louise. She was born April 6th, 1899 in Union City, where she lived with her family at 130 Main Street, two doors west of the Egenhofer family. Her older brother, William Strube, became Nick's best friend. He worked at the Bijour Motorized Car Company, where he helped Nick also get a job. Every evening after work, William traveled to New York City to take free night classes in engineering at Cooper Union. When he told Nick that the school also offered free training in art, he decided to join him. In those days, there was a three-cent ferry boat ride across the Hudson River from Union City to Lower Manhattan. That commute back and forth between Union City, I mean, just going across the river, became Nick's work-a-day Workday routine for the next 40 years of his life. The half-hour boat ride underscored his lifelong feeling of detachment from the big city folk of New York, which is not unlike the attitude of farmers in gouting towards the big city folk in Munich. Unlike the Munich Academy of Fine Arts, the Cooper Union was free to attend, but only if you could prove that prove your talent by passing an entrance examination of your art portfolio, which he did. And uh, in September 1916, he began to take night school art classes at Cooper Union. His drawing teacher was Victor Perard, a professional illustrator who worked for Gunter's Magazine and Smith's Magazine, both of which were produced by Street and Smith. His painting teacher was William Dodd. His work appeared in Collier's Cosmopolitan as well as Gunter's Magazine but we pulp collectors know him as the artist who painted the very first cover of Western Aces. One of Nick's classmates at Cooper Union was Frank Tinsley, who went on to a long illustrating career uh, doing pulps for Street and Smith in Westerns and aviation. In June of 1917, Nick and his family visited Luna Park in Coney Island. He later recalled, quote, I spied a small cavalcade of Cowboys and Indians on horseback led by Pawnee Bill. His show had a stagecoach, a replica of a real western town, and everything else necessary for a good western show, unquote. 
Nick was so drawn to the spectacle that he went backstage for a closer look and painted several watercolors of the scene. Even though his evening art classes were free, Nick was always looking for better paying work to earn an income. His teacher, Victor Perard, suggested that he apply for a job at the American Lithographic Printing Company, which was on 18th, 19th Street and 4th Avenue, just a few blocks north of Cooper Union. In September of 1917, Nick was hired as an apprentice artist with a starting salary of $3 a week. Although he was, um, that was barely enough to live on, his work for the American Lithographic Company taught him many useful skills as a commercial artist. This is, this is uh, the entrance to the building. And this is the uh, grand lobby of the building, which was decorated like an art museum with an impressive display of the original paintings that they made into prints. At that time, this company was producing some of the finest lithos in America, including the famous I Want You poster by James Montgomery Flagg and the patriotic Weapons for Liberty poster by Joseph Christian Leyendecker. In April of 1917, the United States finally entered the first ever worldwide war. That was two and a half years after it had begun. Nicholas Egenhofer reported for his draft registration on September 12, 1918, at which time he was recorded to have been age 20, tall in height, medium build, with brown eyes and brown hair. He had not yet applied for American citizenship, so he was still listed as an alien and therefore not eligible for U.S. military service. At that same time, his father left his job at the ice company for a better position with the Union Dairy Company, where he became the foreman of their stables. And he supervised the maintenance of all the milk wagons and home delivery carts. He stayed at that job for the rest of his life and eventually oversaw the shift from horsepower to motorized milk trucks. In autumn of 1919, there was a massive printer's strike in New York City, which upset production for many printers, including the American Lithographic Company. As the strike dragged on without a settlement, the workers were furloughed without any pay, and that left Nick in desperate need of cash. One evening at his art class at Cooper Union, Nick showed his teacher some of his watercolors that he'd made of cowboys and Indians at Pawnee Bill's Wild West show. The teacher thoughtfully suggested that he might earn some extra money by selling them to Street and Smith as a freelance, um, a freelance job. So Nick took his portfolio over to their offices on the top two floors of their building on 7th Avenue and 14th Street, where he visited their art department um, run by um, William Pop Hines who right then and there bought three of his watercolors, which were used for publications on Western Story magazine, and in return for which he received a total of $75. The artist later said, quote, that was the most money I had ever seen. According to the Street & Smith historian Quentin Reynolds, author of The Fiction Factory, quote, along with Walter Baumhofer, H. Winfield Scott, and many other young artists, Nick Egenhofer hurried to Street and Smith to find rent money. Pop Hines gave him some assignments for Western Story. Egenhofer had never seen a cowboy, never painted a horse, and of course had never been west of 7th Avenue in Manhattan, but he needed work. This is all 
bullshit, but it's a quote, you know, from this guy. But he needed work, and he went to his friend, Harold von Schmidt, who was an authority on Western art, even then. Von Schmidt was glad to fill in his fellow artists with the facts of life of the Old West as it was expounded in pulp magazines. Other artists who, this is still a quote, other artists who labored at Street and Smith and who afterwards achieved important stature were Tom Lovell, Charles Charles LaSalle, how do you pronounce that? LaSalle, and Amos Sewell. According to Amos Sewell, quote, we all work for Street and Smith because the established artists were getting good money at better publishers. Perhaps the experience was good for us, but it was a humbling experience. The art editor always kept a wet palette in his office, and we'd bring in our illustrations, and if he didn't like them, he'd tell us then and there to get busy and repaint them the way he liked it. In those days, according to Amos Sewell, you had to please Pop Hines or borrow money to pay your rent, unquote. Egenhofer later recalled these early days, quote, I was looking for reference pictures for the Wild West when I got hold of Wanamaker's book, The Vanishing Race. That did it. I was hooked. The West got hold of me, and it hasn't turned me loose yet, unquote. This life-changing book was published in 1914 and sold only at Wanamaker's, a popular chain of department stores. The book featured 80 pages of photos of traditional Indian life. The photographer, Joseph K. Dixon, visited Indian reservations to stage his recreations. Nowadays, it might seem odd to title a book about American Indians, The Vanishing Race, but at that time, it was reasonable to consider that the Native Americans actually might soon disappear, thanks to abusive government treatment. For example, while Nick Egenhofer's life was being changed by this book, Native Americans were not able to vote and were not even able to apply for U.S. citizenship. By choosing to specialize in illustrating buckboards, wagons, and Old West, Nick Egenhofer had found a way to express his deep-rooted admiration for his father's life work as a teamster, as well as his own enthusiasm for the Wild West. You could almost make the case that he wanted to recapture the happier times before his family mill burned down. In 1923, the artist began to get assignments from other publishers, such as Clayton, Fiction House, and Doubleday. As soon as he had his foot in the door as a professional freelance artist, Egenhofer stopped going to night school classes at Cooper Union. He also quit his strike-bound job at the American Litho Company because he was ready to work for himself full-time. He set up a desk and a chair as an art studio in his parents' apartment. This is an early book cover he did for Doubleday, uh, which was also sold at newsstands, just like Pulp's. Although... Um, Nick's color covers had become familiar to Western readers uh, as they would walk down the street. The vast majority of his assignments were pen and ink story illustrations that appeared inside Western pulps. And at first he would just do the, the headings like that. His work was eventually published in Ace High, Action Stories, Cowboy Stories, Dime Western, 15 Western Tales, Star Western, West, Western Story and Wild West Weekly. Here's an interesting um, cover by Egenhofer for Mystery Magazine. Although the artist is not well known for his portrayals of women, there are several exceptions around this time in his life. 
This sudden interest in women may be related to the fact that after 10 years of courtship, Nicholas Egenhofer finally married Louise Margaret Strube on May 7, 1924, in Union City. The married couple moved into her family's apartment, and since she was a U.S. citizen, the marriage altered Nick's status to a naturalized alien. This is a paid advertisement in a professional directory of graphic arts industry from 1924. This is the high point of Nick's effort to promote his career as a professional artist. Um, I mean, like in the sense of uh, not being an outsider, but trying to actually become you know, uh, successful in New York City. But um, even in this instance, it seems like he's reluctant to blow his own horn because his name is just casually written at the top rather than having like impressive uh, you know, gothic letter letters or something. And his message to prospective clients is downright modest. You can see in the last line it says, you want to see him? I'll bring him by. I'll be over. One year after the marriage, in the summer of 1925, Nick and Louise drove a Model T Ford across America to explore the Old West. They visited Santa Fe, Taos, Albuquerque, and uh, the Grand Canyon. He was sketching um, ranchers and farmers and Indians and all types of uh, stuff that he would find. He was really delighted to find someone that was delivering mail with an antique mail wagon, and he, uh, someone else had on his, uh, a 20-mule team uh, ore wagon. After the trip, he felt that his illustrations took on a more realistic perspective. Many artists feel that it's more interesting to base their compositions on authentic reference materials rather than just generic ideals. So when he needed to show a horse with a saddle, uh, Nick would draw a very specific saddle. And when he was um, showing like a roping of a calf, he wanted to make sure that the mechanics of how uh, you would do that was accurate in his drawings. And when he was showing uh, the shabby appearance of outlaws or just a friendly game of poker, 1931, Nick and Louise left their uh, parents' apartment in Union City and moved six miles north to Leonia, New Jersey, to a modern apartment building at 222 Christie Street, where their daughter Evelyn Egenhofer was born on October 17, 1932. She was their only child. Here's a fun souvenir from that time. It's a note of Nick Egenhofer's new address, scribbled in pencil. Are you familiar with this, Doug? No? I thought you owned it. I owned it, I was still on it. <laughs> I thought, I thought it's, it, when I saw the photo, I, it had credits saying collection of Doug, but I guess they just screwed up, yeah. It's on the back of Walter Baumhofer's Doc Savage Club membership oh, card. Yes, yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, so this is a pretty cool uh, relic of the friendship between what are actually the two top artists at Street and Smith, both of whom were German-Americans. In 1934, Egenhofer painted a number of dust jacket books uh, for hardcover books. And of course, he continued to draw pen and ink illustrations for Western pulps because these were his real bread and butter. 
Almost all of these drawings were destroyed after the reproduction process. Nick, later in life, estimated that the total number he drew was around 10,000. In the summer of 1936, Nick, Louise, and little Evelyn left their apartment in Leonia and moved 33 miles west to West Milford, New Jersey, where a real estate developer had built dozens of prefabricated log cabins. That's his house. <clears throat> Overlooking Pine Cliff Lake. These were marketed as summer homes for New York City residents. The Eggenhoffers were the only year-round residents in Pine Lake. Here is Nick in his studio, happily at work at the thing he loved most to do. Here's a funny clipping, oh, not funny, uh, from 1936. West Milford girl drowns, her three sisters are saved. Saturday afternoon, while four sisters played on the frozen ice of Pine Cliff Lake, they were plunged into cold water when the ice gave way beneath them. They paddled in the water and clung to the surrounding ice until they were rescued by Nicholas Egenhofer of Pine Cliff Lake, who dove into the water and brought the three of the girls to safety but the fourth one had already drowned beneath the ice. So there's a lot more to being a good pulp artist than just uh, making good drawings. The artist's reputation as a top Western illustrator continued to grow throughout the Great Depression. His work appeared on other titles from other publishers, like Ace High from uh, Clayton Publications and Rapid Fire Western, also from Clayton Although he continued to draw story illustrations for Street and Smith, during the 1930s, they rarely gave him any more cover assignments. But that only increased his reputation as the greatest Western pen and ink artist, because Street and Smith arguably produced the best Western pulps. And he was recognized widely as the top artist in that field. His detailed drawings are um, often copied in pilfered as reference material by other Western artists who envied his authentic details. I've seen three copies of this drawing by Nick Egenhofer of a stagecoach holdup by other artists, and they're, they're almost identical. <laughs> this is just a windmill that he sketched when he was in New Mexico. In 1940, Street and Smith introduced a new magazine, Western Adventures, They wanted the covers to resemble comic books, which at that time were very super popular at newsstands. So they printed Nick's black and white drawings on the cover and overlaid them with colorful halftone separations like Golden Age comics. And the, the, the person, the artist that did the color separations was Tony Tolan. Tony, are you in the room right now? No? All right. He was the colorist. No, that's not true. <laughs> He promised me he'd be here for that gag, but he didn't show up. Uh, in 1940, Street and Smith um, also gave a contract to Egenhofer to draw a weekly feature called Range Savvy, which ran for several years. Range Savvy was a kind of a Western version of Ripley's Believe It or Not, filled with curious oddities of the Wild West. Nick liked to draw this series because he was already an avid collector of Western artifacts, saddles, guns, badges, spurs, and cattle brands. He even made life-size, lifelike uh, life scale models of stagecoaches, ox carts, and buggies that were realistic in every detail. 
And he did that so that he could draw them from every different viewpoint and hold them up and look at them you know, from any different angle and make a convincing drawing of them. While doing this research on old wagons, Egenhofer learned that the original design for the Conestoga wagon was built by Bavarian settlers in Pennsylvania. So its design was a direct descendant of his father's tradecraft. This discovery was a happy confirmation that he had made the right choice to pursue a career as an artist instead of following his father's line of work. But in, his art career, but in that way, his art career was like an extension of his father's uh, work and not a rejection of it. In 1942, during World War II, he reported for a draft registration at the age of 44 with a wife and a child to support. He was not selected for military service. In 1943, the smash hit play on Broadway was Oklahoma. It was phenomenally popular. Everyone in America wanted to see it, but it was impossible to get in because all the tickets had been sold out for many years to come. Oddly enough, one guy who was able to have easy access was Nick Egenhofer because the show's producers had organized an exhibition of his Western art in the lobby of the St. James Theater where they displayed his watercolor paintings, black and white illustrations, and an exact model of a chuck wagon. In one public ceremony, the artist was formally presented with a citation as the ambassador of goodwill from the mayor of Oklahoma City for his efforts to preserve the history of the Old West. Notice on the marquee of this photo that it says the benefit performance is for the National Cowboy Hall of Fame. This institution eventually inducted Nick Egenthofer as an honorary member. The compulsory draft was started in 1940 and had taken away many of the top illustrators from the publishing industry, but that made room for younger artists who were not eligible for military service, such as Roy Harrison. He was 28 years old, blind in one eye, and deaf in one ear. He was raised on a cattle ranch in Oklahoma and was a devoted fan of Nick's illustrations. Harrison signed his work with a rocking H. That was the cattle brand still used on his father's livestock. On his first trip to New York City, Harrison visited Egenhofer, who accepted him as a disciple and introduced him to the publishers of Western Pulps. Before that, Harrison had drawn illustrations for a magazine called Hoofs and Horns, which was a trade publication for cattlemen. He sent a gift subscription to Egenhofer who was delighted with its wealth of authentic reference material. The following quote from 1943, uh, a letter from 1943, is a nice document showing what Nick's personality is like. So I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> it takes a while. Dear Roy, glad you like the painting. Have not done anything much in color these last few years, and I'm trying to get back into it. I've done two or three of these book jackets in the last few months. Had about 20 of my black and white on display at the play Oklahoma, which is all the rage now, on display in the lobby of the theater. Also one of my wagon models, a chuck wagon, for about five months. I'm taking it out this week. Nothing much ever happened from it. An agent called me, talked me into putting it there. In some way, I wish I hadn't. As it turned out, I would have been better off if I'd taken the stuff and showed it around. This was all the stuff, this way all the stuff was tied up and there was nothing I can do with it. Things in the art game have changed so much since the war. I'm not with Street and Smith anymore. I quit along about June. 
but am pretty, doing pretty well just with black and whites. Did a job for Argosy a few months ago with all the chances of more very shortly. Seems like I made a bad mistake sticking with Street and Smith all these years, almost exclusively. I lost most of my old contacts that way, having quite a time to make new contacts. However, I'm hoping. Naturally, with all this paper shortage and everything, nobody knows what's going to happen. There's also a shortage of artists, so I'm told, although I haven't been able for sure to find out until I get around more. Yes, I think I would have enjoyed that Remington show. Like yourself, I prefer Russell to Remington somehow. I don't blame you for collecting those prints. Been doing it myself. Got any doubles you maybe would like to swap? Got quite a few extra. Let me hear from you again, will you? Keep up the good work and you'll get there. This game is not a bed of roses. It's a long shot, but it has its compensations. Illustrating is like a disease. It gets in the blood and you can't get rid of it. So long, Nick Egenhofer. In the post-war period, the artist illustrated dozens of hardcover books published by Grosset and Dunlap, Holt, Reinhardt and Winston, Macmillan Books, Dell Books, Random House, and all the subjects concerned Western history, such as Buffalo Bill, General Custer, the Texas Rangers, uh, Pony Express, Geronimo, and Kit Carson. In the summer of uh, 1949, or no, 1946, I guess, Nick and his uh, family took another long trip out west, and that's little Evelyn right there. In 1951, his daughter Evelyn graduated from Butler High School in New Jersey. After that, she attended Trenton State Teachers College. She eventually married and had two children. In 1955, the artist's father, Benedict Egenhofer, died at the age of 86. After his death, the artist's mother moved in with Evelyn's family, where she lived to the age of 90. So at that point, Nick and his wife were left in an empty nest in their log cabin in Pine Cliff Lake. In 1951, Nick got his biggest art commission. He created three eight-foot-long drawings of the Old West for the Great Northern Railroad Line. And then he supervised the production of silkscreen copies that were installed in all of their newly built club cars. This is Nick's Christmas card in 1956, and this one's from 1958. By the mid-50s, readership of Pulp Magazine had fallen so low as to be unprofitable, and that made the industry look around for some new format to rekindle readers' interest. The contents of Pulp Magazines, created by pulp artists and pulp authors, were repackaged by the publishers into three new formats, pocket-sized paperback books, digest-sized magazines, and men's adventure magazines. Egenhofer received freelance assignments in all three of these new formats, but still his annual income was growing less and less. Paper jo paperback jobs earned less money for the artists because there were fewer of the assignments in any given year. And even when one lucky paperback became a bestseller, the royalties were shared by the publisher and the writer, but not the artist. All the artist got was $150 on delivery. Uh, the digest format was only a passing fad, and that soon petered out. And some of the men's adventure magazines did hire Nick to paint covers and draw story illustrations, 
but the times had really changed. His work for Argosy is one example of how color photography had become more fashionable than classic illustration art. Egenhofer's cover paintings for Argosy provided little more than a decorative backdrop for a color photograph of a Western relic. And to add insult to injury, the table of contents page gave printed credit to the photographer for the cover art. Another example of Nick's search for extra income at this time were illustrations he did for a King Features Syndicate newspaper strip called Your America, written by Clark Kincaid. Um, But this strip only lasted one year. As it got harder and harder to make a living as a freelance illustrator, Nick decided to just give up working for publishers and to refocus his energy on just making pictures of the Old West for his own pleasure. In 1961, he wrote and illustrated his own book, Wagons, Mules, and Men, How the Frontier Moved West. Nationwide publicity about this book reached the Buffalo Bill Cody Historical Center in Cody, Wyoming, which invited the artist to visit as a guest lecturer. Two other retired pulp artists who also spoke at the event were Johnny Clymer and Charlie Dye. Nick was so impressed with the town of Cody that he and his wife sold their log cabin in New Jersey and permanently moved to 739 Sheridan Avenue in Cody. They drove the car all the way. The artist later recalled, quote, Our car was so packed with belongings and artwork that there wasn't room to shove a needle in. After his arrival, local newspapers published stories about the famous artist from the East Coast who decided to move to Cody. Pretty soon, Nick was a local celebrity whose pictures of the Wild West were widely admired. In 1964, he had a show at the Charles M. Russell Art Gallery in Great Falls, Montana. The local newspaper quoted him as saying, quote, Russell felt his work. That's what counts. You can think yourself into his paintings, project yourself into the time and place of the scene. I'm a documentary artist. I portray the Old West as it was. There's no message in my paintings. Once you start that, you're a reformer. You're not an artist, and I don't want to be a reformer. I'm happy painting pictures that tell a story. Now, I cannot touch Russell, nor do I copy him. I'm just interested in the same things. What I'm doing in my art is to preserve the history of early American transportation. With my wagons and things, I struck an entirely different note in Western art. I have a definite purpose to record a segment of Western history before the Iron Horse, which was neglected to a large extent by the older artists like Russell and Remington, unquote. This is one of Egenhofer's bronze sculptures from the 1970s. And here's another one. In 1971, the National Academy of Western Art in Oklahoma City exhibited his work along with other retired artists, Johnny Clymer, Arthur Mitchell, Robert Lou Reed, Donald Teague and Tommy Lovell uh, in the front row kneeling. In 1975, Egenhofer had a one-man show at the Buffalo Bill Historic Center, and in 1981, they gave him a second one-man show when he wrote and illustrated his second book, Horses, Horses, Always Horses, The Life and Art of Nick Egenhofer. According to the artist, quote, I have found throughout my years of illustrating and artwork and in life 
that imagination must precede accomplishment, and in between there's a hell of a lot of sweat, work, long hours, and learning. This period of American art in the pulps is in the past and gone. It cannot and will not ever be repeated or brought back. Having played a part in it while it was a way of life was a wonderful experience. On September 15, 1983, his wife Louise died of a heart attack at the age of 84 in West Park Hospital, which was just across the street from their home in Cody. 18 months later, on March 7, 1985, Nick Egenhofer died at the age of 87 in the same hospital. Of all the pulp artist masters, Nick was one of the lucky few who lived long enough to taste public recognition in his own lifetime. All right, if you've got any questions, uh, you can, or you, something you want to share about Nick Egenhofer that is, is, it's all yours. <laughs> what you got? Yeah, you've shown those books. I, I just realized I was reading some of those books that he illustrated when I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> I, I had no idea of artists. I, I was paying any attention to that kind of thing at that point. Because I just, I was like, damn, I've, I've read that. Back at this time, it's fourth grade class. But it's good you've still got the, uh, an eye for art that you remembered enjoying the illustration. Uh, another book you know, that isn't mentioned in is uh, Eggenhofer's Paul Years. It's a great book. It talks about his relationship with Street and Smith and some of the other publishers. And, and it's chock full of Paul's materials that he did. That's my favorite book, uh, Eggenhofer's Paul Years. Do you know, you know, there's a, I didn't mention it because there's a, a a real bad thing about it. Do you know about it? Yeah, there was a controversy. He withdrew his support from the book. And yeah, it's just it, it was like he spent the rest of his life and all of his savings trying to sue the guy. Yeah. It's crazy because I've done like uh, twenty books or something, and all I do is lose more money on each one. So I don't know what he was thinking, but he was hoping like I wanted to, you know, this guy's ripping me off or something like that. It's really kind of sad, but yeah. I didn't want to bring it up, but. All right, well, thank you for your interest. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.